sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We're here to address rumor and innuendo about your favorite bands and favorite songs. My name is Brian. And hot damn, I'm Murdoch. <laughs> you can get involved in the show. We have the story guys at gmail.com is an easy way to do that. And let's start this episode in a in a new way. We've never really done it like this before, but I want to try something. Are you up for a game? Yes, and I also like new things. Okay. Try I, new things. I like your attitude. Okay, I'm gonna yeah. play you I'm gonna play you a few song clips. And I want to see if you know what they have in common. Now, this is not Hurdle or Name That Tune. I don't need name and title in two seconds or anything like that. Just listen to the tracks. And then once you've heard them, I will ask you to tell me your best guess as to what they have in common. All right? Okay. Okay. Song number one. Song number one. (laughs) What's happening? Do, Do you know immediately what that is? I don't actually. Okay, I mean, it sounds like a hundred other songs, but it's it's a song called "Tonight Is the Night," and the group is Le Click. Uh, probably, yeah. probably the most obscure one on this list uh, that I'm about to play you. So I wanted to put it up front. Um, I need to get a little further to secure the. Yeah, yeah, but you you know that you know the sound. Do da do da do da do da do da do. Okay, number two. You ready for this? Number two. <laughs> I know you used to get down and dirty to that one when you lived in New York. Come on. I thought I knew. Is it, it's not KLF, is it? No, it's LaBouche. Be my lover. Uh, okay. Oh, okay. I got, I got one more for you. Where do you go? Oh, this is Urban Cowboy by Mickey Mickey Gilly. <laughs> For a minute, I thought you were being serious. <laughs> That's it's no mercy. The, the song is called Where Do You Go? And, and you might realize that these all sort of sound the same, and they all sound like about a dozen other songs that were very, very popular in the mid-90s on the radio, including Hadaway. The song uh, that was uh, the, the Night at the Roxbury song sort of sounded like this. You remember that? That's What is Love, yeah. What is Love, right? That sort of sounded like this. There was, of Maybe course, there was uh, the Culture Beat song, Mr. Vane, um, that was a very famous example of this. Do you remember that one? No, but man, I, the the name of that song is pretty hilarious. I, I mean, maybe it was just our age difference, but like when all these songs were popular, I was like in the fifth grade, and so I had a Walkman, and I would tape these songs off the radio, and I would ride my bike through my yard. I was telling my son about this the other day, and so it'd be these songs, and then cut into the middle of this song would be, or into this the middle of this mixtape would be Firehouse, Love of a Lifetime, which yeah, I would what a great song I would dedicate to Angela. Uh, who was in my class at school, who I thought I, was my love of a lifetime. Turns out I was I was horribly wrong. I didn't see her after the fifth grade. But um, in between my rounds through the yard listening to Firehouse, I was also hearing a lot of these sorts of tunes. And yes, they're all sort of similar. They all basically dropped within the same year, and they really capture this very specific musical moment. And that musical moment is the emergence of European dance music, which is usually referred very creatively to uh, to as a uh, euro dance euro, euro dance, dance. Yeah. okay 
let me throw you a curveball and add another song to the stack. We're going to leave 1995, which is basically when all of those songs came out. In 1978, there's another song that becomes the number one Christmas single in the United Kingdom in the year of 78. And it's the cover of a 1956 Harry Belafonte tune. I wish that we were in the same room so I could hug you. This is so crazy. Okay. Okay. You, you you should know this one. Now the sing, a king was born today. Well, okay, so it has to be explained that there's this thing in only in the UK where they the radio like is created and I don't know if it's still popular now, but for years and years and years it was this thing where there was like whatever song was the number one song the week of Christmas was the number one Christmas single. Like it, it's just a, it's like sort of stupid, but it's just a thing that they made a tradition out of in that country. And so you you see this and like Americans really saw reference to this and probably didn't understand it in the movie Love Actually, because in the movie Love Actually, this is not in my notes. I'm going off book here. In the movie Love Actually, there's this whole thing about this song at the beginning of the movie. And it's this ridiculous Christmas song. I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Christmas all around me. And the idea is this washed up singer has taken one of his old songs and changed the lyrics to be about Christmas. And it's the number one Christmas single in the UK that year. Right? So that is a thing that was a big deal in the UK for decades and decades and decades. It may still be. I'll be honest. I don't know. Uh, I think it is, though. And uh, so this was that song for the year of 19... 78 and it is a song called Mary's Boy Child which I know because when I started working at radio stations that went all Christmas format I got a lot of requests for this song and I had no idea what the hell it was and who the hell Boney M was Boney M that's the name of the artist Boney M. that was my reaction and I was like I'm supposed to go on the air and say Boney M over and over this is weird but yeah dude people loved this song and I felt so silly about it and I had no idea who they were and when I would ask around the radio station no one could tell me who they were and the answer to the question of who is Boney M and the answer to the question, what do these 1995 Eurodance hits all have in common? It's the same answer. And it's the name of a person. And the name of that person is Frank Farian. You ever heard that name before? Yeah. Born in Germany, early 1940s. And this dude loved American soul music. And as he grew, he was listening not to the Beatles. He famously has been on record saying he wasn't a Beatles fan. He was listening to Otis Redding and Sam Cooke and Little Richard. And he lived near an American military base in Germany. And he got interested in this music, but he wanted to recreate what he was hearing. He wanted to recreate Sam Cooke and Otis Redding. And he's a pasty white German guy trying to do music made by black men. The only place where this is marketable is on the military base because of nostalgia. The, the guys on the military base enjoy hearing the songs they know from home and are willing to overlook the fact that a white kid is aping black men and so he would go and play in these bars and clubs that catered to soldiers but when he was trying to make it as a singer in his own right especially doing anything outside of germany he had limited success like he literally at one point puts out a single where he covers a notice writing song and then one day he gets a little bit of traction because he's screwing around and he takes this old song from the 60s called al capone it's like this 
sort of precursor to ska. It's like this Jamaican tune. Okay. And he just puts himself saying, baby, do you want a bump? Over and over, over top of this song. <laughs> I, I, it does not sound marketable, but for some reason, it totally works. But it doesn't sound like he's been releasing some music under his own name, Frankie Farian. And this doesn't sound anything like that. So he decides he's going to release it under a pseudonym. And he's trying to figure out what to call this. And he's been watching an Australian detective show that was on for like two years in the early 70s called Boney. And he just thinks, hmm, that sounds kind of cool. I guess if I just put something after it, I could just make that the name of my pseudonym. And that's how he lands on Boney M. Okay. This sounds like I made this up, but it's true. I think I can, like... Oh, man. I know who this guy is. You know where we're going, don't you? Okay. I can can see his face now. And now I'm like, oh, yes. I I will say this also. I'm going to blow it. Also not in the notes that at one point I was trying to figure out what this guy is doing today. Because he's very old, but he's still alive. And... (laughs) <laughs> I got this website that didn't look like a real website. It looked like hackers had put it up or something. And it was like, see Frankie Farian's current hairstyle and rate it. And I was like, wait, what? What? And so, of course, I clicked on it. And it showed this one headshot, like the only headshot you can find of Frankie Farian post-1970 or something. Uh, and it was like, what do you think of his hair? It was the weirdest website I've ever seen. <laughs> Let me tell you. I've seen weird websites. Okay. Oh, so, yeah. um. Okay, back to this. So this works. Like sort of by accident, Boney M and this song that he creates, Do You Do You Want a Bump, becomes a hit in the Netherlands. <laughs> and oh my he, gosh. He wants to capitalize on it, but he's got this Wizard of Oz situation on his hands. He doesn't want to reveal that it was just him behind the curtain messing around in the studio. And <laughs> He now seems to realize that he has this way to create black music without being a black man. Uh-huh. So he calls a talent agency and he says, I need four or five people who will go on television shows for me and dance and lip sync to this song that I made. And he ends he up a band. Yeah. He needs a band. He ends up with this group of models slash singers. And over the next several years, he will produce quite a bit of output with these faces selling it, but he himself doing a lot of the work. Now, he only ever credits himself with production and background vocals, and the black singers he has, um, they they become the official lineup of the group. Liz Mitchell, Marsha Barnett, they're both from Jamaica, and then Maisie Williams and, and uh, Bobby Farrell. One of them's from Aruba, one of them is from Montserrat. And so they have this island pedigree, and they do actually, I believe they do actually do some of the singing on everything after Baby Do You Want a Bump, right? But right. it's a little murky. And Farian is able to ride this international success into a career as a producer. He's having levels of success in countries all over the world. And he they have another song that becomes a pop hit called Rasputin. It doesn't become a pop hit in the Soviet Union, though. They have Mary's Boy Child, which is the only thing that crosses into America, and that's courtesy of all Christmas radio stations. He's basically killing it in Europe and in the Netherlands and in random countries, like Australia, like random places across the globe, but he can't break into the American market. Okay. Now, he gets sort of close a couple times, he does produce a mid-80s Meatloaf album, one of the ones you never hear about. 
Okay. He does this weird thing too, where he that he calls the Frank Farian Corporation, and then he changes it to Far Corporation because that's the first part of Farian. And <laughs> it, he gets German session musicians and like half of Toto to do some weird covers. And one of the things he gets them to do is a cover of Stairway to Heaven. Oh my God! Do you know? I, uh, what do you know about I, this? No, and so, I'm, I'm prepared. Do you have this? Are we going to hear this? Uh, I wasn't going to play it because it doesn't really sound like anything. It just sounds like a band playing Stairway to Heaven. I will, I will tell you this though. Here's the interesting, fun rock and roll nerd fact: the Far Corporation version of Stairway to Heaven is the only version of Stairway to Heaven that's ever actually charted. <laughs> because oh, that's right. Stairway, Stairway to Heaven, Heaven was a single. Stairway wasn't a single. And yeah. so years later in the 80s, when this weird part Toto cover band thing happens, they get like, you know, they're, they're like in like 90th or 101 or something like they're just barely cracked the charts. But by the record books, the version of Stairway to Heaven that is, has been on the charts, quote unquote, is not the Led Zeppelin version, which is funny. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. The one that everyone's heard. But, but this is still not really making his name in America. And if we've learned anything about Frank Farian in the story so far, it is that the dude is always hustling. So he's actively looking for acts all the time. And at some point, he comes into contact with these two dudes, Brad and John. And they're American guys. And remember, I told you, he's in Germany by a U.S. military base. And so okay. he knows a bunch of American people because there's people who get over there and then never leave, right? So they, they may leave the military, but they just stay because this is where they've lived for a long time. So he meets these former U.S. soldiers still living in Germany. And he gets excited because when he hears them sing, they have a, a, a good sort of take on like current music and they can, they can sort of do this thing called rap. It's 1987. And so... This is starting to emerge. So he meets these guys and they can kind of do it. And so he starts digging into his old catalog of Boney M tunes that hadn't really been used. And he starts hipping them up and getting Brad and John to sing on them. But then one night, he's at a club and he hears a song. So let's leave German nightlife for just a moment. Let's skip back. Let's, let's skip back to America and drop ourselves into Baltimore, D Maryland, D.C. area. It's the mid-80s. Okay. You might have, but probably haven't, heard of a hip-hop group from that area named Newmarks. N-U-M-A-R-X. They were childhood buddies who make a rap group and try all of the local music tricks to get attention. They do self-release. They hit local radio. Nothing's really working for them. They do have a couple of guys from the local scene who have who are more seasoned. One of them is in a pretty successful local act that's been around for a long time. I believe they were called Starwood. And they, they somehow convince them at some point to, to help them put together a track. So there's these people from the different facets of the D.C., Baltimore, Maryland music scene working on something. And they write this rap song called... Girl, you know it's true. I'm so in love, girl. I'm just in love, girl. This is true. Girl, I'm you in know love with it's you. true. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I love you. Yes, you know it's true. And ooh, ooh, it gets oh, man. 
<laughs> gets a little bit of airplay in Chicago. Were you right? Did you know where we were going? Yeah, because I put his name and I could see his face, and I was like, that's the guy. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so it goes down to Atlanta, um, but really it stays sort of regional. But it's on this little record label called Studio Records, and somebody at Studio Records had halfway decent business sense, and they had put together some licensing agreements overseas. And suddenly, this song that like barely anyone knows outside of Baltimore, D.C. area is getting played in clubs in Germany. And Frank Farian is in one of these clubs, and he hears this song, Girl, You Know It's True, and he says, that's the song I want to take a stab at with Brad and John. Oh. Now, wow. there is an amazing interview in the show notes where Billboard actually rounded up all of these DC Baltimore guys involved in Newmarks and got them to tell the whole story of the song's creation and then how everything goes down once Farian gets a hold of it. Wow, this sounds fascinating. Oh, dude, it's so awesome. And the best part is uh, one of the main guys who is like producing this is this guy who will go on to work with Timbaland and will play guitar on like, what song was it? I think Cry Me a River by Justin Timberlake. He's like the guitar player on that song. Like he has wow. this weird resume of stuff that he does, but he's a little older. Like these all these guys in 80s, whatever this is, early, mid 80s, are all like teenagers and he's like 30 and he's living with his parents and working at an Amico station as a, as a clerk. (laughs) 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 And he continues. I found an article where he gets interviewed by local newspaper from 90, 91, like when this all starts to break or late eighties. And he is like still working at the Amico station. <laughs> He's like, yeah, man, I just, I'm just going to stay. I'm just going to stay working at this gas station. It's a pretty steady gig. <laughs> so weird. Okay. Okay. Anyway, they've cut this song, Brad and John, Frank Farian produces it's girl. You know, it's true, but Brad and John are mid forties by some accounts. And not only does that maybe not sell as well, but they're also like not interested in all the work it would take to be superstars. They just like to sing, but that's not going to stop Frank Farian. No, sir. He's already done this. He's got a hustling, hustling. He's got a blueprint for this. Now, there's several archive pieces in the show notes that are published in the immediate aftermath of this whole story. And Frank Farian's attitude toward this thing sort of shifts depending on who he's talking to. Sometimes he acts like he's embarrassed. Oh, things got out of control. And then sometimes he acts like he knew what he was doing from the beginning. Spoiler alert. I think, He's not sorry about any of it. I think he 100% knew what he was doing the all of the time. But in some of these interviews, Frank will try to explain that he, what he's doing and what he was always doing through his whole career, Boney M, all the way to this thing with Brad, is he's working on projects. Quote, unquote, projects. I'm doing air quotes. And projects are team sports. You can have one set of folks picking up the studio slack like he did for Boney M, and one set of folks picking up the stage and touring slack, like Liz, Marsha, Maisie, and Bobby did in Boney M. So, if he's already got a studio team for this new Girl You Know It's True project, all he needs is a stage crew who are going to sell his music with their looks. And lucky for Frank Farian, it's about this time that a couple of German dancers, well, one of them German, one of them French, which becomes a thing, Come to see him. And they are guys named Rob and Fabrice. 
Rob is German, Fab is French, and they meet when they're trying to make it in the local dance scene in Germany. And they start trying to make it as a pair. They've even recorded an album at some point in the 80s for a small label in Germany and sold a few thousand copies at some point. But when they get a chance to step in front of Frank Farian, all he can see is possibility. Now notice, I said, see. He doesn't hear possibility. He sees it. Now, if you ask Rob and Fab, this is how it goes down. Frank plays them, girl, you know it's true, and asks them if they can sing it. And they're like, of course. And then he says, awesome, but I actually have a performance booked for next week, and you guys aren't going to be able to get up to speed quite that fast. So just for next week, oh. just for next week, just I need you to pretend to sing it. Now, Rob and Fab are like 22 when this happens. And they wow. will admit, they will admit that they didn't really read the contract that Frank now pushes in front of them. They sign it, and things start happening. Now, I ran across several versions of the story that explained why they named this project, what they ended up naming it, but the one I like most is that Farian took his girlfriend's nickname, which was Millie, and then tried to make it sound like British band Screedy Politi. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I got a perfect way Dude, to make you lip sync. Sh- shouts to that band. We have never gotten to say the name of that band on this show before. Um, yeah. Stone Cold Banger, perfect way. Uh, following this convention, Millie becomes Millie Vanilli. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Athletic Greens and their product, AG1. If the pandemic taught me anything, it's that my immune system needs to be in tip-top shape, and AG1 helps me get there. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, they're all there, and bonus, it does not taste bad, which is really good. Uh, It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, any of that stuff. Contains less than one gram of sugar and helps better sleep quality and mental clarity and alertness. Really good when you're doing a lot of rock and roll research. It's important to me, right? Uh, So, listen, it's time for you to reclaim your health. Arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop, cup of water every day. That's it. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Go check it out and just make sure you put athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. Oh my gosh, can I do a dramatic reading? You ready? (laughs) So what are you doing back? Well, I sat back and thought about the things we used to do. It really meant a lot to me. You mean a lot to me. I really mean that much to you? Girl, Girl, you know it's true. The the spoken word part, it's like like the vamp of that whole song. Oh my God. Boom, boom. I mean, So let's stop here and talk about this for a second. Do you remember Millie Vanilli happening? How old were you? Um, 88, 89. 80, 88, so I'm 14. So, okay, I'm so a, you might have been a little bit like, nah, you too too cool for school. No, no. Um, I re, So this is how dorky I was. So I read, you know, Kerrang! and NME. Like I read, I read like English press, like from the UK. And, and I would look at charts and I bought the Milli Vanilli cassette, Brian. 
because it oh, was the number one Murdoch. record in UK, and I never had heard it at all. Oh my so god, I bought dude! It, I love I you. bought it blind, and I love then you so much. I made copies of that, dude. Son I, of a bitch for everybody. I love you so much. So <laughs> you were like, you were, you were on the front end of the Millie Vanilli trade. You broke Millie Vanilli in Tennessee, is what you're telling me. Probably Lewisburg, Tennessee. Only knows who Millie Vanilli is because of Mark Murdoch. Well, at least at the record bar at Shady Brook Mall, whatever the hell that record store was called in Columbia. So I remember this whole yeah, thing happening. Happen I remember this whole thing happening too, which is crazy because I was only six. Wow. And I remember it. And that's, I think that's mostly a testament to how tuned in to popular music I was from a very young age. Yeah. But Do you I remember seeing them on TV and stuff. Not really, but I remember specifically being at our next door neighbor's house and like my next door neighbor and my sister, my older sister who's three and a half years older than me, so she's almost 10. And I think the neighbor was around her age and they're talking about this whole thing when it goes down and they're singing the song and there's like this whole controversy on like, you know, are they legit? Are they not legit? Like I remember that happening as a six year old, which is stupid. Wow. The, the, the yeah. fact that there's brain space taken up by that memory is dumb. Yeah. And I don't want to scoop what happens at the end. I want to talk about that later. Well, let, let's just, keep let's talk about what Farian does for these dudes. So he gives them the name and then he buys them. He buys them wigs, dreadlocked wigs. I, I got to oh, tell you, those are fake. Those are okay. fake. Uh, he gets some hair extensions, brash outfits, and he leans on their dancing background so they can entertain on stage. They sign that contract they didn't read in January, and by May, they're touring Spain, France, and Italy, wearing spandex and boots and hair extensions and pretending to sing. Now, according to Rob and Fab, they keep asking when they get to have input, and Farian wow. just keeps putting them off and keeping them busy. And he's returned to his proven Bodium ways, which has already worked once for his career, which is he's going to write the album. Suddenly, Clive Davis is involved. Arista's involved. They're going to support this. The snowball keeps getting bigger. And, wow. and Robin Fab start to realize there is no going back. They are never going to get this thing. Gosh, I wonder if Clive knew this was bullshit. N uh, no. Or at least that's what he's, I think on record, he says no. Uh, yeah. So, Farian tells them, well, look, the single worked, and that's good news, but now I need you guys to just keep pretending, and I promise I'll make it worth your while. There's an article in the show notes where the recording process for the album is described, and it says that like Frank would bring in the actual singers, Brad and John, late at night when everybody else was gone, so they would record at like 3 a.m., and then he would have Rob and Fab show up during the day, and just have them walk around the building so that everybody saw them. And then they would like, there was a pool in the bottom of the building, so they'd like go down to the pool. They would never actually go into the studio. I read something else that said at one point, part of the reason Rob and Fab got roped into this, which definitely sounds believable, is that Farian gave them a big advance. Now, yeah, yeah, sure. If you know anything about the record business, advances are the devil because. You gotta pay him back. You gotta pay him back. And so typically what happens is somebody gets in over their head. It's like crashing your car when you still have the loan, right? And so they they feel beholden. They worry about having to pay it back. The charade continues. The full album gets repack, repackaged and released in the U.S. in March of 1989. And okay. Frank Farian 
finally has his American success. The thing he's been dying for. He is making it in America with Millie Vanilli. Five singles, three of which go number one. Can you name these singles? Uh, ba, 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 baby, don't forget <laughs> my number. That's the second one. Yeah, and oh my God, and, you're going to do them in order? I love you so much, man. And then... Um, the biggest one to on. me, the biggest one to me is the next one. And this, girl, I'm gonna miss you. girl, I'm going to miss you. No, that's the third one. What's the other one? Oh. Um, don't forget my number. This is oh, the one that I, that comes to mind immediately for me. Not even, even okay. before, girl, you know it's true. Oh, blame it on the rain. Blame it on the rain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Blame They're it on... Stone- that six-year-old me jammed that song. Those are all... St- they're stone cold jams. The songs because were... they're written by a trained professional. The right, guy. The, yeah. I mean, that's what's happening by here. Machine. By Listen, machine. Yeah. Is Frank Farian an a hole? Yeah. Was Frank yeah. Farian a great songwriter and producer? Yes. Did he have yeah. a Did he have a great ear? Yes. Now, yeah. here's the thing, though. <laughs> if you listen, go and listen to those songs, and listen to the vocal performance, and then look at these two guys. And Millie Vanilli. And the voices do not match up. They sound like old black men. They just do. They sound like black right. men in their 40s or 50s, which is what they were. <laughs> so yeah. funny. And the young guys. So, I mean, this is what happens. Five singles. Three go number one. The, the album goes six times platinum. And famously, the duo wins Best New Artist at the Grammy Awards. Which has made it a curse for anyone to win it after. <laughs> now, again, we've talked about it on the show. Way before this happened, There, was, we've always been joking about how it's a curse to win Best New Artist. Um, we have famous examples of this. We've talked about, if you've listened to the show, and it's, uh, you know, th- for, for however long, you've probably heard us mention some ridiculous versions of Best New Artist wins. I will tell you who else was in the category that year. Do you have any idea? Oh, 89? Yeah. Um. So let's uh, Tone Loke. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. I got one. Okay, so Tone Loke's one. So we're eighty nine. So uh, pop. Where uh, Cheryl Crow? No, no, no. That's too, she, that's too early. Too early for her. She's ninety. Uh, you tell me, because I got one right. Soul to Soul. Soul to Soul. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Nina Cherry. Okay. Oh, Swedish. And the Indigo Girls. In 89. Oh, that's right. That's when that, that record came out. Yeah. but I went to the doctor. I went to the mountain. Okay, good. <laughs> and here's the real issue. The more visible that Millie Vanilli gets, the more problematic this gets. Yeah, they got to tour. Well, it's not just that they have to tour. It's that they have to do press. And Frank hasn't oh. thought this through. And they don't pr- do press well. They don't speak English, dude. Rob, yes. Rob is German and Fab is French. And when music journalists interview them, credibility starts to stretch because they can't hardly talk and they have these crazy accents. And they're like, okay, I understand that when you sing, sometimes you can sing around the accent. Like my my son was asking me this the other day. We were at a music festival and I don't know how this came up. We were talking about somebody and he's like, I don't understand how you can not sound you know, like you're from another country when you sing, but you can when you talk. So we were talking about all that, right? And I was talking about punk rock and how some people like put on the British you have that time, even when they're from California, right? Um, right, right. And Noel Gallagher sounds like a regular guy until he starts talking. Right, right, right. So, so it's like you, an English 
Yeah. You can do that, right? So you don't want to just completely discount it. But again, if you go listen to those records, they they sound like some soulful American black men. And when music journalists interview them, credibility just totally, it totally starts to go out the window. And so they go to MTV. And MTV executives are skeptical, but they're making these cool videos. And it doesn't keep them from trying to cash in on the money train. So they put them on this big bill. They've got this televised show in July of 89. And I believe that on the show with them is Paula Abdul and maybe like Tone Loke or somebody who was the other act. It was like some pretty big acts for the time. And this is a very famous incident where the seams start to show. They come out and there's an insane amount of people in the arena here. Like really stupid number because it was an MTV televised thing. It was in Connecticut, I believe. And however, in 89, they were pumping lyrics into the sound system, pumping the pumping the track into the sound system. Now it would be very easy to do this, right? Because you would have all these things on stage and you loop vocals. I mean, I saw a bunch of EDM bands this weekend, right? And it's like they're constantly looping vocals and making weird things happen. On Everybody knows it's recorded, right? Right, yeah. But That's it's true. a little more difficult back in the day, te- technologically speaking. And so, however they're doing it, it gets screwed up and it gets stuck. The It, it gets stuck on the line, girl, you yeah. know it's. And no, it, it's true. Girl, you know it's. Girl, you know it's. Girl, you know it's. All right, it's, it, it's burned in my brain. And it's just blaring in the stadium. Girl, you know it's. Girl, you know. And Rob and Fab are completely unprepared. As much of... You know, as much as Frank Farian did for these two guys, he did not prepare them for things to go off the tracks for some reason. And so they bolt. They run off the stage. You remember downtown Julie Brown from MTV? Yeah, I course remember downtown Julie Brown. <laughs> she has to go beg them to finish the set. And because it's pre-internet and pre-Twitter, this whole thing barely makes a blip on the pop cultural radar. Most and I remember... I don't know if it was just MTV News or if I was watching it, but man, I saw that crap. In fact, most folks there that day barely seem to even notice anything happened. Millie literally <laughs> comes back out and they just they do their thing and everything gets fixed and it's good to go. Bop, 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 baby. But it cannot be underestimated how much Rob and Fab not really speaking English becomes a problem. Because again, I said, part of the issue is they're doing press. Not only can they not speak English great, it leads to them saying things that make them sound ridiculous. For instance, Time Magazine, March of 1990. Rob is quoted in Time Magazine, not in Spin, not in Rolling Stone. In Time Magazine, he says that Millie Vanilli is more talented than Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger. Oh, Christ, I remember that. Now, oh, what a terrible thing. There's a lot of speculation that this was all taken out of context and that what Rob did say was, again, obscured by his lack of understanding of the English language. But regardless, saying stuff like that typically puts you on the wrong side of the pop cultural wave and people start to turn on you and that is what starts to happen. They get made fun of by the Wayans on In Living Color. Millie Vanilli commercial, take one. Hello, we are Millie Vanilli. You know, a lot of people don't understand the enormous success of Mili Vanilli. And neither do we. They make a Letterman top ten list. Category tonight, top ten, top ten new jobs for Mili Vanilli. <laughs> new Weasel Boys of the record world. Oh, Weasel Boys. Weasel Boys, Mili Vanilli. It's top starting to become you know, an assumed cultural joke that these guys are phony. And so Rob and Fab 
thinking for themselves, have a solution. They go to Farian and they say, here's the deal, man. You want to fix this? We'll fix it. We're the ones facing scrutiny. We are literally the faces of this quote unquote project. Let's, the fix is straightforward. Let us sing. And Farian says, hell no. Hell no, no, absolutely not. Now, you can read all sorts of stuff with Frank Farian where he he just says, those two dudes can't sing. Like, that's his, I mean, he says that over and over in interviews before and after. Well, not before, that were public, but interviews after. He's like, I'm sorry, those dudes couldn't sing. They're just good looking. He was very, very upfront about that. Now, November 1990, Frank Farian fires Robin Fab, and then literally faces the music. He goes to the press and he tells everybody what he did. And of course, the aftermath is absolutely insane. Though I gotta say, Frank Farian has some balls. You gotta say, man. I, I mean... I mean, he didn't hide balls. from it once. I mean, once it started to go off the tracks, he was just like, yeah, of course I did this. I did it 20 years ago and nobody cared. Why, did, why do you care now? Now... As I said earlier, you can look at some interviews. There's there's one in particular from the Washington Post and one from the LA Times. And you can see Frank sort of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. In one interview, he says, quote, it was a crazy idea. I thought, okay, it's just for discotheques and clubs. I never thought it'd be a big hit. And then it was too late and I was too embarrassed to say anything. And if I had to do it over, maybe what I should, the smarter thing to have done would have been to put everybody on stage together and just have Robin Fab dance. In another interview, though, as I mentioned earlier, he explains the whole thing away with those semantics about projects. Millie Vanilli was, quote, a project. It was two people in the studio and two people on stage, one part visual, one part recorded. Such projects are art form in themselves, and the fans were happy with the music. The fans in the music industry have to get used to these kind of projects. We'll come back to this, but, like, I think he's right. They got, they, they got hosed if you now fast forward today where we kind of know what the wizard looks like well, behind it, the curtain. Yeah, and this sets the stage for Lou Pearlman and for all oh, sorts of yeah. other stuff, right? In terms of the boy band movement and, you know, uh, electronic dance music and, and all of that stuff that comes after this. But let's talk about Robin Fab. What happens to them, right? I mean, first, what Frank does is, is Frank immediately, like they already had a second album that was about to come out. And so he just takes it and, and releases it as the real Millie Vanilli with, like, everybody front and center. And it's not very successful. But but Rob and Fab themselves, they get a deal on their own merits from a very small record label and make an album that has publicity and distribution issues. You are welcome to listen to it. I put the link in the show notes. But it it just sounds like a 1992 pop album. I will leave it is at it that. Ro- is it Rob and Fab? Is it that record? Yeah. Uh-huh. Do you know how many copies that sold? Like 2,000. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 2000. Then they, they try to break into acting at one point, which is pretty cool. Um, and that doesn't really work. They like get animated for the uh, Super Mario Brothers cartoon. Get out of here. <laughs> that nonsense. I haven't found that on the internet, but I should look for it. I just read that in passing. Now I really want to see it. This isn't super well known, but there's actually a reunion between Robin Fab and Frank Farian in the later half of the 90s. Really? They, yeah. They almost get an album done together, but it never gets released because Rob dies of a drug overdose before yeah. it's all the way finished. And and it's kind of it's even sadder about Rob because I like 
when all that was going down, like I was kind of dialed into what was happening. Like he, in addition to the, the drugs, like he, I think he like was arrested for like robbery. Robbery. Yeah. Um, yeah. He got, like, he, so a bunch of stuff. He happened, didn't, yeah. he didn't really recover. So yeah. fab is able to sort of eke out a career. Um, Rob is not. It, it things do not go well for Rob after this. And yeah, he there's he's in trouble with the law a whole bunch, and then he has got a drug problem he can't kick, and it eventually kills him, which is definitely really sad. And I mean, you know, it's hard to know for sure, but it is pretty easy to point at Frank Farian and, and put some of the blood on his hands. You know, this it just the way this was done. I mean, I think his argument back is like, listen, I gave these guys a chance they never would have had. It's not my fault they didn't do more with it. But, you know, you're messing with someone and messing with someone's emotions and messing with someone's mental health. And I think those are things now that we understand 30 years later that maybe weren't understood very well at the time. But yeah, Fab, as I said, is a solo career of sorts. He made an album a few years back with John Davis, who was actually his voice on Millie Vanilli, and it's called Face Meets Voice. (laughs) But let's, let's talk about Frank Farian. I, for one, don't think... I said this earlier. I don't think Farian regrets any of this for a moment. And as I also said earlier, partly because history has proven his, him correct, right? Um, I, a lot of this machination has always been happening in the music business in different ways. It continues to happen, and audiences have sort of gotten used to it, right? Just our understanding of what constitutes music and live music and you know if you look at electronic music and house music and DJs and how DJs have moved into the mainstream and like just all of this gets much messier than it used to be in a who is who is creating and who is performing since right do you know do you know much about the contract and how like did Robin Fab like get completely hosed and did he take like all the publishing or so, how did how did he screw them I don't think you know, in all my research on this, there's actually not tons about that. I don't think that they were screwed on the money. Now, he made a lot of money, but he was paying people, at least somewhat, from what I can tell. This isn't one of those stories where they were just destitute from from what I know. Um, that That isn't the headline in this. It has a lot more to do with the distrust and the misuse than it does with the, hey, I stole all your money sort of angle on this. Yeah, right. But the other thing that I think really points out that Frank Farian, you know, is fine with the way things went down is that he didn't slow down for a minute. That was all late 1990. And as I'm sure you remember, at the top of the show, I mentioned those three songs that all came out in 1995, La Bouche, La Click, and No Mercy. I mean, he produced all of that. So he was owning the American charts three years later with three big hits that were on pop radio that I remember listening to on top 40 radio in 1995. And no one even noticed that it was the guy who had brought us Millie Vanilli. And I don't think anyone would have cared if they knew it was. No, no. And I snuck and look at, I looked at Frank's bio cause I was like, what else did Frank do? Cause I was looking to see like what his later stuff was. And I noticed that late, I mean later, like it's in the last decade or so him and his daughter, did a cover of Cool in the Gang's Cherish. <laughs> Just I'm running, I'm running to listen to that. Yeah, that's from 83 from the celebrate. That's the ballad from the celebration record. So in case you were keeping up. I mean, you know, another thing about this too is that it sort of comes up as an underlying theme in interviews with Frank that 
this is an American problem. People being upset with him about this is, an, is distinctly American, which makes this whole thing ironic because he clearly wanted to succeed in America, but he chose the yeah. method in which America wouldn't be happy with his success. Right. But, you know, I think with European music, they just were more used to this idea of collaborations and different casts of characters being involved in the creation of something, right? It just, it, it doesn't seem to have had the sort of effect internationally as it did in America. So, and I'm too, I'm too young for this, but like the monkeys, like, I just have a question mark. Like, I, I just really do. I, I don't, like, okay, that was manufactured. Like, the Archies isn't a real band. Right. Sugar Sugar, like, that's not a real band. Right. Um, but everyone, like, people love the monkeys. Like, people go to see, like, you know, it's, it's about to be, now, like, monkey. I, yeah, It's like there's only two of them left. I think, a part, I think part of the <laughs> monkey, I think part of that is that, top. that they were facing, I mean, the artifice was front and center because they were on television. I mean, Millie Vanilli girls had crushes on them. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, but listen, Millie Vanilli was on MTV, but they weren't characters on a TV show. Right. The monkeys were characters on a TV show. So the idea that it was manufactured is inherent in the premise. Yeah. It's, there's no suspension. You know, you know that it's right. manufactured. Right. 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 Yeah. And it's okay. Okay. That makes sense. No, I, I did do a little more digging on Frank Ferry, and I did see that note about him and his daughter. Uh, and he's 80 years old now. He keeps a fairly low profile. Uh, but wow. there is a public figure Facebook page that has 2,400 followers and has been updated in the last week. So someone is keeping tabs. Um, God bless him. Wow, is he is he signing people off Bandcamp? What, what's he doing? <laughs> he's he's got a bunch of mumblecore rappers. He's about to break. <laughs> <laughs> Here's little sweaty I, I dick love- with his brand new song. Ooh la la! <laughs> did you say? Did you? We have never one said mumblecore is a genre on the show. And little and by the way, where the hell did little sweaty dick come from? What an amazing fucking name. Ladies and gentlemen, we gotta we gotta turn the mics off after that one. Uh, We are the Story Guys at gmail.com if you want to get involved. Uh, We are the Story Guys.com is also our our internet home for um, you know what we've got going on. You can check us check us out there. Review the show, let other people know. You know all the stuff we ask you to do. We appreciate you. We love you. And what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Ah, keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.